So today on the show, we had Ogie Hollywood. So Ogie currently lives in Bali, where he runs his own marketing agency, as well as starting off as a real estate developer. But he used to work at Google. So he's had this really, really interesting journey from studying economics and finance in university to then starting his own social enterprise for a little while, testing out working in investment banking for a few months before he went into Google. And that's where he spent a good few years, did super well, got promoted, was in really senior positions, earned great money, and then he packed it all in and decided to move to Bali. So he's had this really interesting like career arc and he's very he's thought a lot about how he's made different decisions at each point of that journey. Um, and we talk about a few different things. One thing I found really interesting was we talked about how your personality can get defined by your job. That was definitely true for me when I was at McKinsey and uh, Ogie when he was at Google. Um, but also probably more importantly, how to get past that and what it opens up for you if you can. We talk about what it's actually like to start and run an agency, which is something I was very interested in. So he gives some great insight into what do you need to be successful and to start out. He talks a bit about how much money you can make, how much money he makes and what he thinks he can get it to with his agency. We talk about why he's building villas in Bali. And then finally, something that I thought was really interesting was we talk about creating wealth and a big epiphany that he had around creating wealth which actually has nothing to do with making more money. So Ogie's really open. He's really vulnerable. He shares a lot. He's very thoughtful. And this is a genuinely great episode that I think you can learn a lot from. So I hope you enjoy it. You've got a pretty interesting job, career, lifestyle at the minute. When somebody asks you what you do, what do you tell them? Still learning to, 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 to articulate it, to be very honest, but um, I am living out in Bali and I run a digital marketing agency and I also have a small property development company out here as well. And how long have you been in Bali for? Just over a year and a half now. Yeah, so came out in May of 2021 and yeah, planned to stay for a year or so and work things out and uh, ended up staying quite a bit longer and probably see myself here for another another while longer again. Yeah, nice. So I definitely want to go into a lot about like what you do now, the different parts of the agency, the real estate development, what life is like in Bali. But um, you've also had like a pretty interesting journey. So I kind of want to go back a little bit to start and hear a bit about the path that you've taken and what that story is like. So you grew up in Meath in, in Ireland, is that right? Westmeath, next, next door neighbor, close enough. Westmead, okay. <laughs> okay, close enough. Yeah, so, I mean, how, how would you, like, what was your childhood like? Like, what would you describe, you know, life um, growing up? Yeah, um, without going into too much detail, like, my, my parents lived a very alternative life in their, I guess, 20s and, and 30s. Um, they both grew up in Northern Ireland and kind of, I guess, rebelled against the troubles um, and kind of just chose to, to distance themselves from normal society and kind of really pulled themselves away from, yeah, education, career, etc., and kind of went a bit of a, a road journey for a number of years, which was, I guess, the the life I was born into, which was, yeah, quite quite different and alternative, uh, to say the least. Um, but we kind of ended up, yeah, living like settling in Westmead after moving around quite a bit in, in my youth, and essentially I grew up in in social housing. Um, my mom was essentially a yeah, single mom with four children. My dad passed away when I was quite young, so we were kind of I guess yeah shunned into. Um, 
quite a low socioeconomic background. Um, you know, my mum was given a lot of support, thankfully, it's from something I'm very grateful from from living in Ireland, especially now being in Indonesia and seeing a lot of other kids who are we're saying very similar situations, but have a very different, you know, outlook on life based on the, on the, the country they're from. And it really, I guess, humbles you in a lot of ways and makes you appreciate and be very grateful for what I had, even though in context it was very challenging for where I was. Um, it was still very, very privileged, and, and I'm very, very lucky to, I guess, had the support that I had, even coming from somewhat of a challenged background per se. Mm. And so, what was what was school like then? Um. I moved around two or three schools, uh, primary schools. Um, as yeah, I kind of whenever we moved to Westmead, we kind of moved to a number of different places before kind of finally, um, yeah, living in like a, a longer term place. Whenever we finally got given a sense of social house, um, school was always okay for me. To be honest, I was a pretty active kid, played a lot of sports, was very kind of outgoing. Um, never had any major issues in that sense in school. I think in in secondary school, I would say it's kind of would split it in two. Was the the active Ogi who was super fit and active from about 13 to 16. And then the Ogi who got a taste for booze and partying and probably started to push myself down a bit more of a negative direction, a little bit younger than I probably should have been doing, to be honest. But I guess that's uh, the nature of, of Irish, uh, Irish culture in some senses. Yeah. I, um, I was going to say I can resonate that with that, but I actually can't because I was actually I was one of the goody two shoes people in in school who like didn't drink for quite a while um, and all that sort of stuff. But um, so do, when you were in school, like, do you remember having like a job or a career that you wanted to have when you grew up? Was there anything that you were like, oh, that's what I want to be when I grow up? There was very little, like. And honestly, the one thing that always resonated was business. Like I remember when I first started doing, I think it would have been in fifth year and when I started doing business studies, um, that was the one area that kind of enticed me. I was like understanding how businesses operated, how businesses ran. And again, it, it was something that I'd never really been exposed to before. Like I didn't really have any role models in terms of people who really had very serious professional jobs, never mind running their own businesses. Um, but I always had a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit in me per se. Like I was organizing kind of bus runs to discos from probably age 15, you know, making 50, 60 quid on a Saturday evening just by pretty much pulling people together and organizing logistics for, for a Saturday night out, but somehow doing it profitably. Um, and little bits and pieces like that. I generally worked part-time in the summers uh, in construction. So I used to do like a, working with a carpenter doing like roofing and flooring in my kind of summer stints. And then, yeah, I, I never really had any, I guess, say proper job until I was about 19, I think, when I started working in retail at Marks & Spencer's in university but it was yeah i don't know career wise not so much like i I think that the biggest thing that i often found interesting and it was probably only when i realized like i was always very adamant that i was going to go to university i was like i'm going to go to college i'll I'll get my degree and a lot of the guys i was hanging out with at the time i only realized that a lot of them were a year ahead of me and none of them went to college after school Uh, a lot of them didn't do too well in their leaving cert and it was kind of a realization for me of like oh, wait a minute, okay, maybe I have different ambitions or drives to the people I've been surrounding myself with. And like, you know, really good guys, still some of them I'm friends with today, but they just had different ambitions and different goals for where they wanted to go with their life. And I think that was a little bit challenging for me to kind of come to terms with that and realize that maybe some of the decisions I was making weren't kind of putting me in the right positions and the right situations. But it was, yeah, I never, never really had an idea of what I wanted to do, to be honest. Mm. When you say like some of those decisions, like, what do you mean there? Um, I think very much lifestyle factors. Like I was, yeah. Whenever you grow up in social housing, right, you don't have very many positive examples around you. So there's a lot of drugs, a lot of alcohol. Most people are on social benefits. They don't 
very few people were, were working around me that I could see. And that, I guess, obviously leads you into certain habits and routines. So like I was taking drugs very young at a very young age. I was drinking very heavily at a very young age. And that was seen as okay. You know, there was never really um, anyone to steer me in the right direction to say, like, you know, cut yourself on, pull yourself together. The, the best examples that I think I find in my youth was actually like my football coaches. I remember when I was like 16, one of my trainers coming and knocking on my door on a Sunday morning and literally pulling me out of bed and getting me to go to play a semi-final. And I was out in the booth the night before, you know, didn't care less about the, the, the game. And, you know, at the time I was like, fucking hell, what are you doing? You know, I don't want to be here. In hindsight, I'm thinking like, actually, these guys were probably the best influence I had in my life at that time trying to pull me out of the negative habits that I was that I was getting myself into and yeah really trying to set me on the straight and narrow and keep me some way in line um but yeah that, that only kind of lasted so long before I was my own demise in some senses for, for quite a number of years mm. and so I always think and I guess it, it I think this is probably true right that a lot of what we want and aspire to is determined by the people that we spend our time with and that we hang around with. So you're saying, you know, the, you didn't have too many great role models. The people you were hanging out with maybe didn't want the same things as you want, didn't, weren't aspiring to go to college. Where do you think you got that as, aspiration from then if it wasn't from like the people and the, you know, the role models around you? Yeah, like it's it's funny. I think there's a tailor two halves, right? Because on on one side, both of my parents came from relatively good backgrounds. So like my my father's father uh, was a serial entrepreneur, a very successful businessman, and it was almost like a skip to generation where my parents chose not to go down that path, but there was still that ability or that understanding or that intellect there. And like without being an arrogant way, I I performed very well in education. Like throughout my school, I did very well in my leaving cert. I got very high points. And that was very surprising to a lot of people around me. They were like, wait a minute, how, how are you doing that? Like you, most of us don't do that, if that makes sense. And that was where a bit of realization for me is like, whether that's natural ability and whether that comes genetically or whether it was more so that there was a level of work ethic that I had that maybe I didn't show people around me, but I was still was putting my head down when I needed to and studying whenever I needed to, even though it wasn't my you know, core habits. I wasn't you know, studying like crazy, but I still did, did enough to get by. Um, so there's kind of that was one side of it. I think there's like my my family background per se was probably more driven, better educated, even though my own direct parents didn't choose to take that path. And then the other part of it, I think, that really comes down to a lot more for me was a sense of knowing that I never wanted to have that life myself, never wanting to have that struggle for myself. Like I grew up fully knowing that my mom lived in her overdraft. Like it was like my mom had a 600 euro overdraft and pretty much most of our time was spent in that overdraft. That was, you know, food shopping for the week. That was paying the small bit of rent that we had available. That was putting, you know, petrol in the car. It was always, you know, there was, we never struggled per se, you know, and I'm very grateful to say that, you know, we, we ever didn't have food on the table. We never didn't have what we needed. I never didn't have my school uniform, et cetera. But we didn't have much more than that. And it was always a sense of like struggle. It was money was always a challenge. And I think I always just had an ambition to say like, I want to create security for myself. I want to educate myself. I want to push myself in order to create a better life for myself in the future and not have to think about money as such a challenge so consistently. I want to, I want to come back to that a bit later on. Cause I'm always interested in terms of like people's motivations and like what's driving them and if that's changed over time. So I'll come back to that. But, um, Tell me a bit about that story then kind of from school through university and you know, maybe the first job or so that you got at a university. What did those few years and that path look like? Um, yeah, but like I, I guess for me, my university years were, as most people are, a bit of studying, a lot of partying and then kind of knuckling down in the final year to get myself through it with a good degree. 
the path from there wasn't very straightforward. I didn't apply for grad schemes. I hadn't got a, a job lined up after, after college. And I actually went through a bit of a challenging time in my probably second to third year of university where I had a lot of mental health struggles myself, put myself in quite a bad position, mostly driven by the lifestyle I was living. But there's obviously some some genetic factors that play and there's also some some trauma that maybe I hadn't fully dealt with from my childhood. And as a result of that, I was very keen to kind of do the work in the mental health space. So whenever I graduated, I actually, yeah, my first enterprise was a small nonprofit organization, which was to support and alleviate young adolescents who were struggling with mental health problems. And I ran that out of a, an enterprise center in Galway. We got a, some funding from the local enterprise board, uh, a company called Skull Enterprises, who are like a, they support essentially small companies in Galway through mentoring and, and, and grant aid. And yeah, I was very naive. I was like 21 years of age, super naive, trying to change the world, thought I was going to fix things and thought I was going to be a hero. And very quickly realized it's like, you know, I was working 70, 80 hour weeks. I was working three jobs um, and pretty much burnt myself out very, very quickly and realized that I was yeah, very unhappy and really lost as to what the hell I was really doing with myself. And that was, yeah, I guess that was my first year out of, out of, out after college. I you know, got a good degree, got a first class honors in, in economics and finance, um, but was essentially making barely any money. I think probably best case, maybe 15 to 18K that year, uh, working in Marcus Ventures as an assistant manager. I was working in a small company doing sales and marketing as kind of like a front end two days a week. And then I was trying to run the nonprofit on the side of, of, of all of that. And yeah, I think I got to a stage where I realized I was like, look, this is not sustainable. And there's loads of other organizations out there who are doing a very good job in this space. Why don't I just, you know, collaborate with them and support them through doing, you know, one or two fundraisers a year and yeah, continuing to do some public speaking around mental health, continuing to support people in that space, whatever way I could, but without it having to be my core kind of, I guess, day-to-day job and purpose. Um, so from there, I ended up going into, I guess, trying to use my degree and went into finance. So I, I went to work for uh, Bank of New York Mellon, uh, spent about a year with them in their corporate trust division. So their US investment bank um, wasn't a very traditional high-paced investment banking job, to be honest. Like a lot of people would imagine, it was more asset servicing. So we're doing a lot of back-end reporting for large uh, corporate de- debt funds. So, so CDOs, um, accelerate debt obligations. Not very sexy, not very exciting, um, but it was a job I did quite well at. I was always very analytical, always very good with numbers. Um, and in honesty, from there, I had always been very keen on Google as a company. I think even through through college and after graduating, I kind of always seen them as like, I'd love to work at a company like Google. And I remember someone put, a, put up a post on LinkedIn and a, a connection of mine had, had kind of shared it or liked it. And I was just pretty much saying like they were looking for, for junior people to join their, their entry-level sales team, working with small, medium businesses to support their growth. I, and honestly, I didn't know what Google Ads was at the time. I hadn't a breeze. I'd never heard it before. Didn't know what BBC was. Didn't know what Google Advertising was. I obviously knew what Google were, but didn't really know how they monetized. Um, naively reached out to the person on LinkedIn. Actually, no, correction. I followed the person, but was too uh, didn't have the confidence to reach out. So I waited about three or four months, and she then posted again. I was like, okay, fuck it. There's, there's nothing to lose. So give it, give it a crack. Um, and yeah, I reached out to to what was one of the managers in the in the UK sales team. We ended up meeting for a coffee, ran through my experience. And it's funny because, you know, in honesty, my degree, even though I had a first, I went to probably a lower level college. I went to GMIT, um, which is another story for another day, but it you know, wouldn't be seen as a very high level uh, college within Ireland. Um, and, you know, I'd, I'd worked a few random jobs for a year or two. It wasn't, I wasn't the normal uh, candidate for, for going to Google. It was people who were coming from high level universities across Ireland, UK, Europe, most of them coming from with a master's in SEMS or business related. And um 
the main thing that got me that job was actually the, the, the startup. So it was actually the nonprofit because it was very different. And it was like something that I guess very few people had done at that age. So I think that was, even though it didn't actually lead to anything at the time, it was the entrepreneurial mindset and pursuit of trying these different things that probably put me in a position to get, get the job at Google in the end. Um, and yeah, then ended up there for you got to nearly five years, four and a half years or so, um, where I joined kind of their, their entry-level sales team. I kind of progressed my way through to being kind of one of the senior salespeople within our, our mid-market sales organization. I was kind of in between that stage of do I step into a managerial role or do I step out and, and, and kind of do something different? And I obviously chose the, chose the ladder to, to step on and, and try something a little bit different. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have like an idea of what it's like to work at Google. I know I probably do. I've never worked at at Google. Um, I've been in the offices a couple of times. I probably have like an idea of what it's like, but how do you describe what it's actually like to work at Google? Um, and honestly, it's a very good place to work. Like as far as things go, like I don't have that much other experience outside of it. I've obviously had three or four other roles and now working for myself, but in terms of corporate structures, it's a very well put together organization. You know, you have quite intelligent people you're working with. People are very driven and ambitious. I think the biggest thing for me was the network of community that I that I met through Google, um, and being surrounded by people who had that level of ambition, that level of intellect, and that really pushed me to improve myself and push myself going forward. In terms of the general day to day, like it's not a super high pressure organization, but in any sales organization, you have targets to hit, and you're you're going to be under a certain amount of pressure to do that. I was someone who, in honesty, like I, I struggled massively with imposter syndrome when I joined first. I was this like working class boy from a council estate, surrounded by lots of wealthy rich kids who went to private schools, and I just felt completely out of place. Felt like, who the hell? How did I get this job? What am I doing here? I'm not good enough to be in this position. Um, and it took me probably six to twelve months to kind of get over that and starting to find my feet. And you know, I always worked very, very hard, and I always had a bit of a chip on my shoulder to prove to myself and probably to prove to others, which. You know, if I go into a lot of what's drove my career and you talk about earlier on in terms of that driving force, it's actually been riddled with insecurity. It's been riddled with insecurity about not being good enough based on where I came from and feeling the need to prove myself in every situation that I've been in. And Google was no different for that to me, to be honest. It was a situation where I excelled in terms of actual performance. You know, I, I think we have like rating scales where you get from a, a needs improvement, meet expectation, exceeding or strongly exceeding. And within the four, four and a half years there, I, I only ever like strongly or, or super or, or, exceeded expectations are strongly exceeded but in honesty i never felt good enough even no matter how good those ratings were and how quickly i got promoted it never validated and never made me feel good enough it was always a sense like i need to do more and i remember 100 like literally there was maybe when the promotion came on that day or the few days afterwards there would be a feeling of like oh, okay shit i've, I've clearly got my head on i clearly know what i'm doing i'm clearly doing well enough to get promoted in a company of this size etc um but very quickly the same thing would creep back up as to be like not you're you're a fraud you're you're not good enough to be here um why do you think that is though because you've got all the evidence of like you know you got the job and then you know it, it clearly wasn't a hiring mistake because they you know you stuck around for a few months and a few years and you kept getting like the good ratings and the promotions or whatever else so like why do you think that evidence couldn't like convince you that this was real and that you did deserve it um i don't know i think it's very deep rooted to be very honest and it's something that i'm still trying to come to terms with today like i've did a, a really interesting book i read recently which is called the courage to be disliked and a lot of it goes through this sense of like allowing yourself to be yourself right and, and allowing yourself to be yourself unashamedly without the fear of, of rejection or fear of fear of or without needing validation from others and 
I think due to feeling quite different when I was growing up in my kind of earlier years and because of the choices that my parents made, perhaps, I always felt like I was different to people around me. But instead of accepting that difference or leaning into it, I tried to mask it by trying to fit in. So I tried to really almost role model people around me, dress like people, behave like people, you know, do whatever anyone else was doing in order to fit in. And you know, that's also probably what led me down quite negative paths in certain examples because I didn't have the courage to step away from those situations because I felt like, oh, well, if I don't do these things, I won't be liked or I won't fit in. Um, and, and that's followed me like very, very deep, I would say, uh, in terms of within my psyche. And it's something that I'm really starting to come to terms with now is, is understanding, like, I think where, where it comes from, and this is probably quite deep, but it's a sense of like, so my father committed suicide when I was like three years of age. So there's a very severe sense of abandonment and a sense of being left. Um, I think with that, then also being in an environment where, you know, my parents were almost like new age hippies. They were like airy fairy, free loving hippies, very spiritual, very out there, very alternative ways of living. And again, whenever you go into a small Irish town, that is the most out there thing you can see, right? People are like, they're like, who are these weirdos? So there was a sense again of that being like, oh, well, you don't, you don't fit in here. So I always had this desire just to fit in, just to be normal. I remember like growing up, that was my biggest desire was just to be normal. And whenever you spend so long trying to be normal, you almost lose yourself and you forget who you are. And that comes down through how you behave in social situations, how you behave in, in, in commercial work situations. And when, for me, whenever it came to career, it was always this sense of I needed validation and I needed to feel like I was important enough to be in that situation and therefore I was good enough to be in that role, that job, that company with that person, et cetera. And it goes, it's multifaceted. It's not just career, it's relationships, it's friendships, it's social dynamics, it's, it's, it's everything per se. And I think the, the biggest part, of it, and this is where it's really interesting, right? And I think a lot of people might resonate with this is whenever you don't feel good enough in yourself, you have two choices, right? One is you sit within that insecurity and you literally feel like very low upon it. And it's very easy to see that. Like you can see people who are very low in self-esteem. They don't look good in themselves. They don't hold themselves very well. Or you learn to mask it. You learn to mask it and you come across as super confident, super assured of yourself, super well put together, et cetera. And I definitely took the latter of those two. And therefore, for most people, they see me as super high achieving, super confident, super you know go-getter, able to do whatever was put in front of me. All while in reality, all that's doing is creating a few challenges, challenges dynamics in my own mind because it's, it's I, I'm kind of trying to show up in a way that's not authentic to myself, and then also challenges in relationships because actually, as in order for my need to validate myself, that often means I'm putting myself above other people. And instead of it being like I want to be as good as, it's I want to be better, and I want to be better so I can prove that I'm better, and therefore you can no longer look at me as lesser. And that's where it gets into a very you know deep sense of like, okay, what am I doing this for? And that often, that often projects itself in arrogance because instead of it being, a, you know, of like what I've actually achieved from a, from a confidence level, it's I need to prove what I've achieved so I can prove my worth. And you see this in a lot of situations. Like if I look at it on, on, on a macro scale, you know, every guy who's driving a brand new Beamer has an insecurity in reality. And he's trying to he's trying to you know cover that up with, with the new car. Every guy who's, who's who's buying a brand new Rolex there every year and flashing it in Instagram and put you know again that's an insecurity. I don't feel good enough. I'm going to try and validate that by using a physical object in order to make people think that I'm doing better than I am. Or even if I am doing well, it's because I clearly don't think I'm doing well enough in myself. Therefore, I need to prove it with some sort of form of means. Um, and it's like there's there's a really interesting dialogue from that book that's looking at it's like a certain level of inferiority is very important, right? If we didn't feel inferior, we wouldn't strive to get better. 
So for example, in fitness, right? If you didn't feel like, oh, I could get fitter, you wouldn't bother training. In business, if you felt like, oh, I've got it all figured out, you wouldn't try and learn. You wouldn't listen to podcasts. You wouldn't read books. So a certain level of inferiority is very important for, I guess, the human journey in some senses of how we want to progress. But as you, as that becomes essentially like a superiority complex, where no matter what you do and no matter how much you prove it to yourself, you never feel good enough, then it becomes a real challenge. I think for me, it's addressing that actually there's probably a sense of, of a, an inferiority complex underlying a lot of these challenges that I need to deal with and address. And it presents itself in two ways. It presents itself in one way, which is that sense of actually feeling inferior and not good enough around other people and always comparing myself to others. And in the second example, it also presents itself as a superiority complex where I'm trying to be better than other people in order to validate myself. But in reality, neither of those things are required. It's just a level of like, I should accept myself as I am without the labels of my job, my company, my business, et cetera, and feel good enough as I am without the need for those things. Like, And I've always found this like very, whenever I was working in Google, when I would go out in the city, for example, and meet people, normally you say hello and you get to know somebody. Whereas whenever you have a need to validate yourself, you almost, you would say, I would say where I worked almost within the first sentence that I said. And again, that was a realization of like, I know that by working in Google, people think I'm successful. People think I'm doing well for myself. Therefore, I'm going to say this to validate that I'm worthy of their time, which is complete bullshit. But that's that, that's where it comes from. And you'll see it across loads of places where if people have the need to say how much they earn straight away, people say where they work straight away. It's like, instead of just being human, if someone asks you where you work, you're of course not going to lie to them, but you don't need to present it to them. By the way, I do X, Y, Z. Because if anything, all that does is, is two situations. It either makes that person feel worse because they're in a position lesser than you, or it makes them then try and one-up you if they're in a position higher than you, as opposed to just being a level playing field where it's like, you're just another person. We're both equal. We're different, but we're both equal. And then it's like, you know, that dynamic doesn't happen in either of those people's heads. Yeah, it's really, I, I remember when I left McKinsey, um, that was something that I really struggled with because I could meet somebody and they'd be like, oh, what do you do? And I'd just be waiting for them to ask what I did. So I'd be like, oh, I work at McKinsey and I'd feel great about myself. And they'd always go, oh, that's really cool, you know? And then I'd, I'd feel wonderful. Um, and then I left and I was working at this startup that pretty much nobody had heard of. And when people ask me this question, I would tell them I worked at the startup. They'd never heard of it. And then I would have to give them some line to try and justify it. You know, oh, we've just raised X million or whatever else. You know, basically scrambling, trying to be like, no, no, like, I'm good. Like, I, I swear, like, I've got a good job. Like, <laughs> and yes, yeah, so I, I, I really miss that. And I, I still, and it's even, it's even, I would say, a bit, a bit tougher now because now I'm, I have no job, right? So people are like, what do you do? And I'm like, yeah, how do you find that? Um, I'm trying to just lean into it. Like, I'd almost make a joke out of it. Like, I did a first aid course, like, a month ago. And, like, we did one of these, like, round-the-circle things to introduce everybody. And it was, like, you know, what your name and what you do, right? And so everyone's like, oh, I'm such and such. And I work in, you know, this bank or I work as a teacher. And then it got to me and I was like, um, I was like, hi, I'm Stephen and I do nothing. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? I was like, oh, I don't have a job anymore. <laughs> like, yeah, I just don't do anything. Um, so it is It is a bit, I, I think with all these things, it's like um, rationally, I'm trying to make myself okay with it. And I'm like, this is fine. Like you can, you're not, your value isn't tied to like what you do. You can just tell people that you're taking some time off. Um, you know, I really struggled with telling people that I was actually let go, right? Like, that's a really hard thing to actually admit. Um, but then 
I'm tr- but I'm trying to force myself to do it. But it like emotionally, it doesn't get any easier because like your chimp brain every time is like, no, no, like don't admit this, like don't tell them that you're like, you're unemployed, and um, because it makes you feel like low status. So yeah, it's not easy, but I just try and force myself into it. So how did you feel putting out that LinkedIn post the other day, where you guess you yeah publicly you know talked about that sense in terms of where you're at and what you're doing and, and how this next chapter is very much a break to kind of figure out the next step as opposed to it being I've got it all figured out I'm going back into next job. Yeah, I actually felt okay with that one. Um, I will, ha- I'll admit though, like I, even in the post when I was writing it, I didn't wrote, write, I got let go from Wayflower. I wrote, I finished up at Wayflower. So like I, I masked it even in there, right? Um, so I'm obviously not fully okay with it, but um, I think I'm actually pretty okay taking the, taking the time. And, and and admitting that I don't have it figured out. Um, but I've been in this mindset now for a few months. So I think if you asked me this maybe three or four months ago, I would say like, no, I really, I'm really struggling with that. But I think now I'm okay with it because I know it's, I definitely know it's the right thing for me to do at this point. Yeah. It's interesting though, isn't it? Just how it does rear its head because there's so many, and as much as some of it's internal, there is also external and people do also assume and people do also judge. So therefore it's like, even though a lot of it comes from our internal battles with ourselves in terms of how people are going to perceive us and we're overthinking those situations, people do question and people do think, oh, what are you going to do next? Like whenever I was leaving Google, I remember it was like, oh, but what are you doing next? Like, where are you going to go? What are you going to do? And it just always comes up. And I think it's a matter of being able to, as you said, like, actually, I'm going to take a bit of time off because I... When I initially had left, I left like uh, I planned to leave before COVID. And I was like, had my notice handed in, had my apartment left, I literally had a flight booked. And the plan was to do a month in Indonesia and then go to Australia and jump into another job. And I initially kind of knew that I wanted to travel for a few months and I wanted to kind of do three, four months travel and then go to Australia and kind of just sort it out whenever I got there. But in that last three months, when I was still working at Google, I had this tendency to like, oh shit, I better start interviewing. I better start looking into jobs because everyone kept on asking me what I was going to do. And I, at that time wasn't secure enough in myself to say i'm going to take four months off to travel so i was like i better get a job lined up for australia and it has to be something better than what i was doing so people can say that it's worthwhile leaving google to go and do that um and if anything it was a blessing in disguise that COVID happened and caused me to sit back for a year i actually went back to google for that year stayed working there but whenever i finally did leave i was no longer as needing that validation of like what am i going to do next like no just take some time to see what happens and see where things go and kind of work it out from there yeah, and, and, and I think that I've found with myself, and I think this is typical with, you know, high achievers or people who, you know, need validation from their work or whatever else, is that they're tied to their productive output. So it's like, for me, I would, I used to, even at the weekend, I would have to do something productive um, to feel good or to like earn myself the relaxation of the afternoon or the evening, whatever else. And so the big thing I've had to work on is like, how do you do nothing and not beat yourself up over that and be satisfied with that? And that's been like a real journey for me. So like December was a forced month of pretty much nothing, like not trying to do anything productive because, okay, now I'm doing a couple of things, say like with this podcast or whatever else, but it's really easy to like leave a job and then straight away try and fill the void with something productive so that you, at least you feel at the end of the day, okay, well, at least I've done something today. I've progressed myself. Um, which is, yeah, something that I'm, I'm definitely still working through. But I, I want to I go back to 
like you leaving Google because I saw in LinkedIn posts, you said that you're actually afraid to leave Google and say that you're leaving Google. Is it for those reasons that you're kind of mentioning or were there like other maybe more practical or tangible aspects of the, the move that you were kind of afraid about? Um, there's a few elements. Like I think a big part of it was what I mentioned, like my, my identity became very wrapped up in what I did. And a lot of my self-worth was derived from the fact that I had this job in Google and I was doing so well for myself, et cetera, et cetera. So by stripping that back, it's almost like you have to go back to being by yourself and learning to navigate the world by yourself without having that label to say that you're successful. So that was definitely one element of it. On the other side, obviously, there's a financial side of things, right? I'm in a very well-paying job in a very comfortable position, very, very secure in that environment. To strip that away and essentially strip all those securities away that you have, all the perks, all the benefits, you then again, you're not just uh, like emotionally opening yourself up to the, the, the challenges. You're also putting yourself under financial pressure. Like, okay, how do I actually survive? I need to still make a living. I need to earn money. I need to, et cetera. Um, you know, like luckily I, I built up quite a bit of a buffer. I had a bit of savings put away. So I was like, I, I knew myself that I had enough runway that I wasn't under pressure to need a job kind of straight away per se. And that I think is a quite important thing. I think for anyone who is thinking about potentially setting up their own thing is make sure you give yourself, I would say ideally a year to a year and a half if you can. Um, it obviously made that much easier for me. I've run my, yeah. But again, like in Ireland, right, that's very challenging because you're living in a very high cost base. Whereas by relocating myself to a place like Indonesia, my cost probably half, if not maybe even less. Um, so therefore, my runway in a place like this is so much longer than it would have been if I had a state in Ireland. So if you're setting something up and it can be remote or you can run it remotely for the first year or two, I would definitely recommend going to a lower cost base and kind of taking advantage of that kind of location arbitrage in a sense where you can make money in a Western country where you're well paid, whether it's Australia, UK, Ireland, but you can spend in a developing country like Indonesia, Thailand, et cetera. You can live, you know, your money goes much further and you don't also have to reduce your lifestyle too much because that's a very big challenge for people. Whenever they step out of a, you know, a well-paying job, you're used to going for nice brunches at the weekend. You're paying a premium gym membership. You're going on nice holidays. And it's very hard for people to, to get rid of those luxuries. You know, as much as we want to say we can go back and live super frugally and live on a, a backpack in a hostel, it's very, very hard. Like, and I noticed that myself. It's like, I'm, when I came here, it's like, I still want to live in a nice villa. I still want to have a nice home to go to. I still want to go for nice dinners at the weekend. You know, very thankfully, it's much cheaper to do that here. So I haven't had to limit myself too much. But my costs have decreased substantially. Um, but it's been mainly due to changing location as opposed to changing my lifestyle habits. So, so what would that, what would that, what would that number be then? If you were like, if somebody was, say, they're in Ireland, UK, US, wherever else, and they're thinking about leaving, moving to, let's just say Bali, like wh roughly. And I know this is dependent on the level of lifestyle that they want to have, but like, what is that that number? Yeah, like I, I would say to put yourself in a product, you know, a very comfortable position, you'd want 50, 60, 50 to sixty k in your bank and have, you know, no worries in terms of having enough money to get your visa sorted, euro, yeah um and that would be more so in terms of you know if an emergency comes up and you have to fly back to europe for some reason you, that's not putting you under pressure you're thinking holy shit i'm gonna have to pull my whole operation out because i have to go home for a month or being able to fly to australia whatever it might be um i think you can do it for probably 20 but doing it with less than 20 you're you're putting yourself under a lot of pressure and pressure can be good because it forces you to to take action and make things work much quicker but also that can be very challenging right if you only have say three to four months of runway you know without making money that's a challenging position to be in especially if that's all your life savings and you're chipping away at it consistently each month you don't 
ideally want to do too much of that. Like for me personally, I only, I chipped into savings for like three months. And even that felt uncomfortable, even though I knew I had quite a good buffer there. That was very uncomfortable to me being like, shit, my savings are just decreasing here every month. There's nothing going back in. Um, and that was when I was like, okay, I need to start earning again, per se. Gotcha. So you left Google. Did you move to Bali straight away? Yeah. So in the last year of Google, so after I had like, I had quit and then I went back, we went to work remotely. So we went to work work from home. I ended up getting access to work from Europe for my manager. So I went to work in Portugal for three months. I then went to Greece for three months. And then I went to Tenerife for like four months. So I got a bit of a taste for working remotely and being able to live in you know warmer climates, different kind of lifestyle, et cetera. And I really enjoyed it. Like I really enjoyed the sense of like, and, and the funny thing about it was I was much more productive than I had been. Like I was in a place in Ireland where I was getting a little bit fed up, wasn't enjoying the weather. It was just like, it, you know, I, I was ready to leave. And I really wanted to move to Australia at the time because I seen it as very, you know, romanticized in terms of beautiful weather, beautiful scenery, nice people, etc. But I realized that I, I got that a lot of that in Portugal and Spain. Um, and it was more so realizing that whenever you have a laptop, I can do my job just as well from anywhere. And it was funny because whenever I went back to Google that time, I ended up getting promoted that year after being like working remotely for six months. And that was a, you know, it, it was nice in terms of validation, but also a lot of my colleagues, I think, had assumed that I was just chilling on the beach. And they're like, oh, he's just in, in Portugal, chilling on the beach. And in honesty, I, I, I took it on myself to kind of almost give back to my manager. Like he's given me the permission to go and work from somewhere. So I'm going to make sure that I turn up for him and actually make sure that, he, you know, he, I'm respecting his decision. I'm respecting his authority, but also I'm giving back to him in terms of trying to deliver as much as I can for the team. So he's grateful for my performance and therefore you know, showing that I'm thankful for what he, what he allowed me to do because it wasn't available to everybody at the time. It wasn't like anyone could go and work from anywhere. It was because I had left my apartment and I had left my job and it was like, I didn't want to commit to another 12 month lease. And I was like, I'd really appreciate the access to work remotely. It would probably help me perform better. And it, and it did in that sense. Um, so yeah, after that year, I kind of built up the courage to say, okay, it's, it's, they were kind of bringing us back to Dublin, back to the office. And I was like, look, I, I just, I don't want to go back to the office. I really appreciate the offer. I really appreciate the promotion. I know there's opportunities here for me, but I need to make this move for myself in terms of just living abroad and trying something a little bit different. And that was whenever I had probably more so rationalized that I do want to take a bit of time off. And I do want to go to somewhere like Bali for a couple of months to kind of figure things out in terms of where I want to go next, as opposed to jumping straight to Australia into another job. Um, so I came here in, yeah, like May of 2021, after finishing up in Google at the end of end of Q1, sort of an end of uh, March. And yeah, like things, it's been a roller coaster, to be honest. And like, you know, anyone who, you know, probably sees my LinkedIn makes it look like it's super plain sailing. And it's been go easy from day one. It's been very, very far from that. It's been an absolute whirlwind. And, you know, both, both financially and also emotionally, like there's been so many times where I've been like, what the hell am I doing? Do I just pack this all in and go get a job again? And the, the big thing for me, right, was so I, I spent kind of three months just chilling, right? I was training every day, going to the beach, taking it easy. And then I got to a stage where we went into a lockdown over here. And I was like, I kind of, I was like, I, I, there's no point in just sitting around doing anything, not nothing. I couldn't really travel. We couldn't really go anywhere because COVID was still a thing. So I was like, if I'm going to be sitting here just, you know, with not much else to do, I, I may as well do something and start working. So um, a few people had reached out to me on LinkedIn um, and there was like an issue it was like a protein brand who were launching. I'd worked quite a lot in Google with e-commerce brands in the supplement space. I worked with like both powder, fuel nutrition. So I knew that industry relatively well. And initially I was like, yeah, look, I'll help you out on a consultancy basis. I'll kind of do it like pretty much helping them build out their marketing team, help them hire kind of ads people, hire social media managers, et cetera. And that was kind of the first introduction project. So it was more doing like consultancy hourly based work with a startup, um, helping them kind of pretty much go to market with a, with a new new product. And 
yeah, and then a few other, it, it kind of just all grew organically from there. So I did a, a couple of consultancy gigs for probably the first six months. And I was doing hourly consultancy. Realized quite quickly, I think there's one turning po- moment where a brand had hired me to help them build out the Google Ads internally. I trained the, the in-house team. It was going quite well for them. And then one of the, the, the team had also was doing some freelancing. So I, I decided to help, um, essentially help them launch Google Ads for another brand. And for me, I was charging quite a good consultancy rate on an hourly basis, but I was giving away so much of my skills for actually very, very cheap in, in the overall scheme of things. And the guy that I trained essentially turned that, you know, 10 hours of training into a two grand a month retainer for him to manage the Google Ads for that account. And I was like, hmm, maybe I should be managing these accounts and having the consistent monthly retained income instead of giving away all my expertise. And again, that, but that was a, a real pivotal moment for me because I, I really didn't want, not that I didn't want to, but I felt like managing accounts was below me, being very honest. I felt like I was in a much more senior position and I was you know, advising on strategy for CMOs and CEOs. So to go back to running the tools and doing the day-to-day felt like a step down. But then I was like, mm, get your ego out of your way. You can make a lot more money doing this than what you're doing and it's much more consistent and stable. So you know, just go and do it. And yeah, that's probably about a year ago. And then... Yeah, kind of moved from there to start taking on clients, uh, built it from kind of one to two to three, four or five. And we then, it's really only about six months ago, I decided to turn it into a business. And this was again, where there's a kind of a pivotal moment for me where two things happened at the same time. So I'd been in a position where I initially said to myself, look, if I can get to a place where I'm making like five grand a month from Bali, I'll be super happy. I don't need much more than that to live here and put a little bit away. And, you know, it was very much a temporary thing for kind of a, a year to live here and ex- experience it before moving on to Australia. And the big thing in my head was that there's no point in building a business that I can't bring with me to Australia. This was my narrative for quite a long time, because in order for me to be in Australia, I to be sponsored, and therefore I need to have a job. So there's no point in putting in that hard graft of building a business. Just do a bit of, a bit of freelance consultancy work, make enough money to live pretty comfortably out here, and kind of go from there. And it was in, I think, May of last year, where I kind of took a bit of, like a bit of time away, went to Thailand for a few weeks. And just from a combination of conversations with people, you know, it was like, what if you backed yourself for a year? What if you went all in and did the things you really want to do for a year? And if it doesn't work out, Australia is still there. It's not going anywhere. And your skills and experience are also still there. So you can still jump back into a job if you need to. And after that moment, essentially, that was whenever I was like, you know what, let's do it. I was like, came back to Bali, like put my head down. That was when like, I, I wasn't drinking much in the last year anyway, but then I pretty much cut out alcohol at that stage. Like if I want to really get my head into this and really push things forward. I need to be in a good mental place. I need to be able to train, exercise, sleep well. And in honesty, my social life and alcohol has just very much been reduced, but business and, and financial uh, things are in a much better position. Um, and pretty much on that on that day, we decided we're like, I'm going to buy land. We're going to build um, villas here in Indonesia. We're going to set up the, the, the company to do that. We're going to launch the marketing agency. We're going to try and scale it out. We're going to hire people. We're going to take on more clients. And, you know, it's, it's still very early days and by no means have I got it all sorted out and all figured out, but it's, you know, it, it's moving and it's moving in the right direction. I think that's the biggest thing is like, once you fully commit to it, things will happen and contacts will come and people will help and people will put you in the right direction. And I think it's just about taking that leap of faith to actually back yourself to go all in and stop giving yourself an out, stop giving yourself an alternative. Ah, oh, but I can just go back to this. No, just do it and commit to doing it and see where it takes you. Yeah, I love that because I know that you've posted before um, something along the lines of, uh, I think there was two things actually that stood out to me. One was like, um, the only thing that's doing the thing is doing the thing, 
right? It's not talking about the thing or building the website for the thing. It's actually doing it, which really resonates with me and I think is great advice. And the second thing was about what would happen if you just gave something your all for 12 months and took away, you know, the excuses or the potential outs. And um, it's, it seems like that's kind of the decision you made and, like, there's a lot of power in that. But what – so tell me, like, give me a sense, like, what sort of size is the – is the business at now? Um, and I think, you know, there's obviously the business side of it, but then I think what people would be really interested in is like, what does that mean for you in terms of, you know, either, I don't know if you're comfortable sharing how much you get to take home, but, or even maybe the lifestyle that you're able to live off of that. Cause I think people often from the outside, there's some people who run these agencies, you see them and they live this flashy lifestyle, right? And it looks like they're making an absolute ton um, but then sometimes people aren't. And it, it's very difficult, I think, to know with these types of businesses how well they're actually performing and what that means like for the owners. So how do you kind of give people a sense of the type of lifestyle that you can live from it and the size of the business? Yeah, um, I guess I split it in two, right? Because for me, I, I don't have one business, I have two. And it's something I have to keep reminding myself because if I wasn't doing the property investment side of things and we didn't have a real estate company, the agency would probably be quite a bit bigger than it is. But for me, I want to have both and I enjoy having both quite a lot. The like the marketing agency, we we broke six figures in about nine months. So not a massive size, but we were over 100K in turnover within about nine months. Um, my take home last year was just over 100K. So again, close to replacing my Google salary, probably a little bit under, but 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 pretty similar remits of what I used to make in Google, which... I didn't think was possible, to be very honest. I, I, whenever I left Google, I was like, no matter what job I do, whether it's my own thing or in front of the company, I didn't think it'd be realistic to make similar kind of money to what I did in Google. Um, so to do that from here is, I'm very happy with that per se, but I know, we're again, we're still only just getting started. The opportunity is quite large. Like I think we can probably double, if not triple that in the space of 12 months, if I can hire the right people and take on the right kind of clients. Like something that we're very, very passionate about is like, genuinely working with the right kind of businesses who we know we can work with and we know we can scale. And that also means, you know, having people that are ambitious themselves and have a good business and they're ready to grow as opposed to taking on stuff that, you know, isn't in a good place and, and, and needs a lot of support and guidance on how to actually run their business because we're experts in marketing. We're not experts in logistics and supply chain. So ideally working with e-com brands that have that stuff sorted so we then can just run ads and, and scale it for them. But the other side of things is, is for me is the real estate side of things, right? Which is I realize that an agency is a very cash flow positive business because you have very low overheads, especially if you're remote and you don't have an office and your staff are generally hired on contract basis. So you don't have a lot of overheads in terms of staffing. I hire quite high quality staff who are mostly based in Europe. So I'm paying, I would say quite high rates. Like I'm, I'm paying guys upwards between 30 to 50 per hour. So it's like, I'm not, we're not outsourcing cheap staff in, you know, in, in, in developing countries, but they're very high quality and therefore they can deliver for me without me needing to, dictate or oversee too much or micromanage them which is, is very helpful for me in terms of trying to grow and scale um and any of the property business is is in honesty is where i'm hoping to make much more in the long term right I, i'm pretty much reinvesting the majority of my personal savings and our profits into purchasing land and building villas we currently have four units under construction two of which will be finished in the next three months and then another two to be finished by november of this year and then we're looking to kind of double that by next year again so we're hoping to have probably 10 units done within the next two years and there's quite significant cash flow to be made in, in the property market here in Indonesia. Um, it's complicated, but there's, there's there's a lot of opportunity in that space. Um, but the, the, the biggest thing for me, right, and this is something that, and honestly, I've actually been considering posting on LinkedIn, but I know it's going to get a lot of hate, but I'll, I'll chat through it with you. 
which is essentially right. You don't need to necessarily make that much more money to substantially increase your ability to create wealth. And whenever you're earning, let's just if we use a six-figure example, right? You're earning a hundred thousand salary. If you're earning that in Sydney, Dublin, or Bali, for example, it's a very, very different uh, reality. In most Western countries, you have a very high tax base and you have a very high cost base. So therefore, your general outgoings and expenses, if you're earning six figures, right, that sounds like an amazing salary. After you take off 35 to 40% tax, you're looking at like 60 grand a year. So you've only got five grand a month left in your pocket. Then you go and pay for really expensive rent. You then pay for expensive lifestyle, nice holidays, etc. If you're saving a grand a month, you're doing well. Like I know a lot of friends in Dublin and they're saving a grand a month, they're doing well. A lot are not even doing that. That means you've got 12 grand a year. It takes you five years to save 60K, right? And that's or, or, that, that 60K is then a down payment for a mortgage, which nothing against doing that, but it's a very slow way to get, get wealthy. And if you flipped it on its head, right? If you earn the same amount, so you're still earning 100K, for example, but you decrease your, your tax base by having company structures and better tax jurisdictions to say 10 to 15% effective tax rate. All of a sudden, you're looking at say seven and a half grand a month take home instead of uh instead of 5k you decrease your expenses probably half from 4k a month to two two and a half k all of a sudden you start to save four to five times what you would so instead you know, if you if you're making seven and a half k and you're saving 5k all of a sudden you're saving sixty thousand in a year instead of sixty thousand across five years and that was the biggest realization i read the book the psychology of money which really hit home in terms of like the fastest way to have less money is to spend money on trying to show other people you have how much money you have right and that was like this is what most people do, right? You buy a nicer apartment, you live in a better area, you buy nicer clothes, etc. And that's, as you said, a lot of the guys in the agency space, they're flashing designer watches. I think most of these guys are broke. Some of them are making money, but they're spending it all on luxury goods in order to show how much money they're making to then try and sell a course to some other person who wants to have the lifestyle that they have. That's the reality of a lot of the space. Whereas if you can limit your desire and your ego to try and do those things and actually become more frugal and save a lot more, and find an avenue to reinvest that profit into something that actually makes money, you've you know potential to start really accumulating a lot more wealth than in a traditional manner in a corporate structure that you would in, in UK or Ireland, for example. And that for me has been the biggest realization. Like, you know, I, I'm by no means super wealthy. I, I've only been doing this for a year and I'm very much still learning on that curve. But I can see my journey within five years doing what I'm doing right now has way more potential to create financial security and financial freedom in the future than what I was doing back in Dublin. And that for me is the biggest realization of why for me this is the right thing to do at this time in my life. Because, you know, I don't come from money. I've never had a, been in a position to, to to really understand these things. And again it's why I'm so passionate about learning about this and also trying to teach people about it because I never had a clue how to manage money. I never had a clue how to save, what investing was. I didn't understand any of it. So to try and get my head around these things and realize there is ways to make money. There is ways to accumulate wealth that are not just your typical path of, you know, put it into a pension fund and put it into a 401k or whatever it might be. Um, and trying to learn these nav- navigating money a little bit better has been probably the biggest learning curve for me over the last year or two. Mm. Yeah, it's a really good point, especially that point around the fact that there's, you know, three elements in the equation. There's what you earn, what you pay in tax, and then what your cost base is. And it's not just one, which is probably what most people just focus on is that very first one. Um, to come back to the marketing agency for just one question, because there's probably people out there who are maybe working in, you know, a Google or a Facebook or another company, and they're thinking about maybe setting up their own agency, right? It might might be a marketing agency. It might be design agency. It might be something. Who do you think is in a good position to do that? And who would you actually say, you know what, 
maybe maybe it's not for you, right? What are the types of skills or background that you think can lead to somebody being successful? Um, it's a good question. There's two things, right? So first point I would say, which is a bit of a big learning for me, I most likely wouldn't hire someone who's ex-Google or Facebook in my agency. And that's nothing to do with in terms of the caliber or skill sets that they have, but actually the skill sets in terms of advertising are generally not as high caliber as you would assume them to be. And what I mean by that is day-to-day running and managing campaigns and actually running advertising campaigns for, for clients is very different to advising and selling those solutions. And that was a very big learning for me. And it's probably only the last year that I've really improved my skill base in terms of actually understanding how to run marketing campaigns for brands, as opposed to just looking at advising them at a top level and selling them Google solutions when I was in Google directly. In terms of skill sets, like, you know, the reality is it's still a lot to do with client relationship management. So communication, ability to sell, ability to deal with people, ability to be organized and efficient uh, in, in that capacity is very important. But I would also say, you know, in the early days, you do need to have a strong level of understanding as to how those businesses operate, how they monetize, how they make profit. And also, if you're going to work in a, in a marketing sphere, how the channels that you work on um, perform and, and how they operate. Because it, it's two-sided, right? It's one is if you're still doing a lot of the sales and potentially overseeing some of the day-to-day management, you need to know what you're you're talking about in those kind of pitches with clients. And you need to be able to resolve if there's problems coming up, you need to be able to solve them. And then also from a hiring standpoint, if you're trying to hire people and you don't know the skill set you're trying to hire for, it's very hard to vet if someone's good or bad, right? And I had this a lot in the early days. Like we, we've now niched into only doing Google ads for e-commerce. In the early days, I worked with a lot of e-commerce brands where we did email marketing, Facebook ads, and kind of full full, full, funnel, uh, full funnel solution for them. And I found it super challenging to hire you know, good email marketing guys, for example, or, or girls. Um, same for, for Facebook ads. Like, okay, where do I go to hire good Facebook people? And I end up like massively ramping up that space and doing a lot of courses myself because I wanted to learn about it before I could really go and, I guess, deliver that service to clients. And it's just, it's, it's yeah, it's one of those things that's a combination of, I think you do need to know the channels you're trying to sell quite well um but that's more so in the early days and i think i'm getting to a stage where as i start to scale i'm realizing that the skills that i needed to ramp up as a freelancer and onboard our first couple of clients are quite different to the skills that i now need in terms of trying to hire people trying to create systems and processes for onboarding clients how we you know do project trackers and, and managing expectations with clients on a quarterly basis how we deliver performance uh, results to them on a weekly basis and all of these kind of things are now i guess what's front in mind for me is like how do we look at putting in place processes to operate more efficiently as we try and scale. Because again, you can become the biggest bottleneck. And that was a big thing for me is like, if it's me and people are coming to, to work with, with Ogie as a, as a, as a Google ad specialist per se, they, it's very hard then to offload that work to, to my team. Um, so, uh, but the, the other challenge with that is people also have very negative perceptions of agencies. So as you then position yourself away from being a high profile freelancer to being an agency, people potentially want to work with you less because they do want to work with me. They don't want to work with my team. So it's starting to get to a position where you have to try and prove how good your team are by delivering results as an agency as opposed to as yourself. And they're the challenges I'm currently trying to work through. I haven't solved them by any means yet, but I'm, I'm trying to put in place uh, yeah, the steps to get there. Mm. I like that framework that you were initially talking about in terms of what you need. It seems like there's kind of three things. Like one is... You need, you know, the core, I would say, entrepreneurial skill set of being able to sell and being able to organize and all that sort of get projects done. 
And then there seems like two knowledge aspects. One is around your customers, which I hadn't really thought about before. You actually really need to know your clients and like what makes their business tick, how they make money. And then the third one is obviously the subject matter. So whether that's ads or design or whatever else. And I think when I think about this for myself, it's like, okay, well, you might get the first bucket, the core skill set. You might have that from a lot of different backgrounds. It almost doesn't matter what you do. You can pick up those skills. Um, But the knowledge of a specific client base or the knowledge of a specific um, job, whether it's marketing or design, that's actually probably a bit more related to what you've done before. And it's harder to spoof, right? Because I was thinking about myself, I've done a bit of D2C marketing, but primarily B2B, right? So if I wanted to do this, I'm like, I would feel out of touch going in and talking to people about D2C marketing because I don't know those customers as well as I used to, whereas I could very confidently talk about B2B. You know, um, so I think that's kind of like I, I really like that as a framework to think about what skills you and knowledge you might need um, if you wanted to go and start down this path yourself. I've got two more questions um, just before we finish up, if that's all right. Um, so the first one is you've I've seen some of your LinkedIn posts before about like leaning into risk. Right. And um, I have written in my journal like two years ago to take more risk. Um, I think I'm taking a little bit more. If I went from, you know, a five out of 100, I might've gone to a 20 out of 100, but I'm still trying to push myself further along that scale. So like, what would you say, like, what's your advice, I guess, to me in terms of how do I lean into risk a bit more and take a bit more risk? I think the the biggest thing that came to me, and it was actually a conversation I had with a guy in Dubai, he was saying, it's like, that thing about what's the worst that can happen? Like, honestly, what's the worst that can happen? We generally over index on fear of judgment and what other people think and we over inflate that value that we give to other people in terms of their perceptions of, of what we're doing and how successful that is and we hand over that authority to someone else to judge what we're doing as success or failure instead of setting your own benchmarks in terms of what's success for me and very often success is trying success is doing the thing and actually taking steps towards it and you know the result isn't that important and that's kind of what i'm trying to learn so instead of attaching myself to i need to make x or i need to do y it's like success is doing the thing consistently you know for me recently like linkedin i was like okay i want to post two posts on linkedin every week consistently it's not about right now generating 10 leads or doing whatever doing the activity itself and and, and pushing myself out of my comfort zone to do that, that that activity is almost success to me right now that may compound in the future to equate to financial gains in terms of onboarding new clients etc but it's more so taking the step to do the thing um and again giving you know like yeah, again, like not not giving yourself an out, right? I think I've I've done this a lot in the past where, like, I almost rationalize not doing something, right? And I had this 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 barrier of like, what's the difference between your gut feeling telling you this is not a good thing, which I think we should generally think to or, or, or listen to, like if something really doesn't feel right, right in yourself, like okay, this is not a good thing. I need to leave this job. I need to leave this this position or or quit this company. Listen to that, but before you listen to that, have a serious conversation with yourself to say. Am I giving up on myself and am I quitting on myself because I'm afraid that I can't do this or I have insecurities or, 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 or imposter syndrome? Or is this genuinely, you know, tell it, that I've genuinely tried my hardest and I've pushed consistently for, say, six to 12 months and it just hasn't worked? And if the answer is is the latter and you've, you've done the, the work for 12 months and it just really hasn't worked, and it's not a good fit, step away with no qualms. Don't feel bad about it. But if you give up on yourself and you quit on yourself, have a hard conversation with yourself and say, no, we're, we're doing this. Follow through with what you said you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think that's, it's a great piece of advice. I think it's also a really tricky one. 
Um, because I know for myself, I really struggle to give up on stuff um, because I think it's failing. And there's stuff that I shouldn't have given, I should have given up, given up on um, and probably a lot sooner. Um, but didn't because I was like, no, 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 I need to persevere. Like, I'll figure it out, I'll figure it out, I'll figure it out, I'll figure it out. I can't give up, can't give up. But actually, there's times where, as you say, if you've given it a good crack and it's not working out, you've got to be able to say, do you know what? The better thing for me right now is to give up on this thing. But I would agree, but I would say you're in a much smaller bracket of the majority of people. I would say the majority don't take the first step. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be too hard on yourself for, for pushing through too hard on things that maybe sh- should have finished earlier because I think the majority of people just don't take the first step and they, they talk about their dreams and aspirations and what they want to do, but they never get to taking the step. The, the, the other big thing as well, Matt, for me, is like people talk way too much, in my opinion, about follow your passion, follow your dreams, do what makes you happy. It's like, for sure, right? Do things you're interested in. But it's like, you have to be rational, right? You need to make money at the end of the day, right? If you're following your passion that's paying you 500 quid a month, you're going to be broke and have a shit lifestyle. Whereas if you're doing something that makes sense and you have your passions as interests that you still can explore and you create a lifestyle that allows you to live a life you want to have and explore your passions and interests and have enough time to do so, it doesn't need to be your core thing. If anything, often make, turning your passion into a job or career makes you resent it and hate it because then you get, you know, you don't enjoy the process anymore. So say like, don't over-index on people selling you online, like, oh, go and follow your dreams, follow your passion, do what makes you happy. It's like, create the lifestyle that you want to create and use the skill sets that you have available to you to do that instead of just this fluffy up in the air follow your passion yeah yeah there's actually um i heard recently there's research to support that right which is like the second you pay somebody for something that they previously did as a hobby or as a pastime their satisfaction in doing that thing goes down right so i think it's like um yeah i think you're right i think you've got to be really careful of it i think you know the ideal situation is that you get both right you find something that you're really passionate about and it's able to pay you something that you um, you can survive on and that you can thrive on and then it's like okay that's the dream but I do agree with you that like a little bit of a sense of realism and it's easy to you know come up with a great TED talk or a YouTube video about following your passion but like you know passion doesn't pay the bills I guess but, but again t- t- if you try and balance them right I was gonna say if you try and balance them in terms of like if you really do want to follow something that is a passion do it in a controlled manner where you test it and you build it to a stage where it gets big enough that you then can quit your job or you can change career. Because I think a lot of people just, they quit the job, for example, with the idea of pursuing something new. Six months down the line, they realize that it doesn't work and they have to step back. Whereas do something as a side hustle and like smash it as much as you can for six to 12 months. If it gets to a place where actually, as you said, you can create a job out of something you're passionate about and it becomes an income stream that can actually give you the lifestyle that you want, then by all means, jump and do it. But don't just take the leap with no real planning or understanding of how that's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a very good point. If you were giving one piece of advice to somebody who was, whatever situation they're in, whether they're in a corporate job like Google or maybe they're actually running their own business or they're a teacher or whatever else, and they're having a bit of doubts about, is this for me? Do I want to do this for the next five, 10 years for the rest of my life? but they don't really know what else that they might want to do. And they're trying to figure all this out. What's the one or two pieces of advice that you'd give to them? Um, I think number one is like, I'm a big fan of journaling and reflection to try and understand like where I'm at and what I want to do. And I do it quite consistently. I do it on a daily basis, but more so like uh, every six months or every 12 months, I'll really sit down with myself and ask myself a lot of questions around like, am I living the kind of life I want to live? How do I want my days to look? 
like a, one exercise I think is very, very powerful, which is like your ideal day and not the ideal day of like sipping being loud on a beach, but like a day to day. What do you want to look like? Who do you want to be around? What do you want to do? What energy do you want to have? How do you want to feel? And that can often map out the kind of structure that you want, the kind of people you want to be working with, the kind of industry you want to be in, and just more so the, the flow of your day. Because I do think like lifestyle is very important. And if you can create that, you can then often look at how do you create a life around what your ideal day looks like. The the other thing is, well, like I, I, I personally work with a business coach at the moment, and she's amazing in terms of helping me get out of my own head and overcome the, the roadblocks that I have. So I definitely would recommend working with a with a good coach who can actually help you navigate and understand where you want to go and why you want to go there. Because I think we're our, always our own biggest limiting factors is ourselves. Like we, we put the ceiling and the cap on where we can go and what we can do. So having someone to help with that can be very useful. And otherwise, like reading and podcasts, like think realizing that it's possible, like seeing people that have done it and realizing you know, if they can do it, why not me? I think this is something that we, everyone generally, and me included, like we limit ourselves on what we think is possible. And when you see other people, it's like, oh, wait a minute. Okay, that can be done. Um, and I think that's one of the most important things in, in life and business in general is realizing that it can be done. And that can be through reading a podcast, but also can be the people you surround yourself with, right? If you're surrounded by people who believe that setting up a business is super crazy and risky and how would you ever do that? It's very unlikely you're ever going to take the step to do it. If you're around six people who run their own businesses, chances are you're going to think of what the hell am I doing not trying to run my own business and so again like I think environment and the people you surround yourself with are super important so maybe the uh, main three is yeah don't be afraid to get a coach and get some help um, and reflect and journal on what you actually really want and then yeah also your network and, and who you surround yourself with and what you listen to is super important I, I, I really like all those three on the coach one uh, I do have to follow up where does one find a coach because I'm in this situation where I don't have one. I actually don't really have many mentors and I want one, but I have no idea where to go. Um, it's, so for me personally, uh, I did a course on executive leadership coaching while I was in Google. So it's like a nine month diploma as a, for me, it was actually a stepping stone towards management to be a better leader. And the senior lecturer on that course is now the person that I've hired as my coach. I also brought her into Google to run coaching programs for our team before so i actually had that as a, as a connection i'm more than happy to connect you with her um but i don't know in, in general like i think look at people who are i don't know like the, the biggest thing that i think people make a mistake on coaching is they assume that they want a coach who's done what they are doing when a coach doesn't have to have experience in your field that's 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 where a mentor comes in as someone who can actually assist you with how to actually do it a coach is someone to just challenge you with hard questions and make you think about what you really want. I think that's where people often overcomplicate trying to get a coach with like an expert expertise in their field, as opposed to just someone who they resonate with. So someone whose opinions and viewpoints that you think, oh, I like the way that they speak, I like the ideas that they're presenting, that's the kind of person that I want to work with. And again, I would ideally say, look at your network, look, ask around. I'm sure that a lot of the leaders that you've worked with in the past work with quite good executive coaches, and they may have good recommendations for people that, that would be a good fit for you. Yeah, that's a great shout. And I actually will take that introduction, if you don't mind. <laughs> um, super. Ogie, thanks so much for, for this chat. I think like people are going to find it really, really helpful because you've got like this really interesting journey. Uh, and also, like you shared a lot, right? And you're pretty vulnerable. And I really, really appreciate that. Yeah, look, no worries, man. I really appreciate having on. And a good good chat to have. I think, look, the last thing I'll finish on is just to say that it's... Uh, it's definitely a roller coaster, and there's been lots of days where I still think, "What the hell am I doing?" And I think about, you know, who am I to run a company or who am I to try and do these things? Um, but yeah, you just got to kind of keep pushing forward, and hopefully, it'll work itself out in some way. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Ogie Hollywood. If you want to follow him, 
go check him out on LinkedIn. So it's Ogie, O-G-I-E, Hollywood, as in Hollywood. By the way, one of the coolest names I think anybody has ever had. Um, he shares a lot on LinkedIn and he's, he's actually a really, really good follow. Um, and if you enjoyed it, go leave us a review. I won't give you the full spiel of why, but please do. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever it is, chuck us a review. I'd really appreciate it. I'll see you next time.